since it's uh, been a little while, since we've been in, uh, guess where? Gospel of Mark. That's right. Need to give a little background, I think, just to recap sort of uh, where we have been so we can know where we are jumping into in uh, chapter 12. And Jesus, a few weeks ago, actually quite a few weeks ago now, had used a parable to excoriate the Jewish leaders who should have known better than anyone as to who it was that was standing before them. Instead, they were his greatest enemies. And on every occasion that Jesus seems to get, he doesn't pass up a chance to lay them out, to expose them. And what followed over the past uh, several weeks is that his enemies come up with two contrived traps that are meant to get Jesus to say something incriminating so that they can arrest them. So they put him in a corner regarding paying taxes to Caesar, which he escapes by answering factually, but very cleverly and wisely. And then they take a snippet of something from the Torah called Leverate Marriage, and they concoct another trap that Jesus again expertly dodges, telling them that they are ignorant of the very scriptures in which they claim to be experts. Now, none of this is serving to make Jesus more likable or more popular or more acceptable. So we're still now in this same vignette with the same crowds as we begin the next pericope in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. And the next interchange with Jesus is different, though, now from the previous ones that we've looked at over the past several weeks. In verse 28, we read that one of the scribes came and heard them, that is, his colleagues, arguing and recognizing that Jesus had answered them well. And this scribe asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? Or what's the most important one of all the commandments? Now, of note here is remember that the scribes, who as a group, and this man is just one of those scribes, were a big part of the critics along with the Pharisees and the high priests trying to trap Jesus. But now this lone scribe recognized that Jesus answered his critics really well. And apparently he was impressed by it. And Jesus was able to answer his critics well because he was studied. Yes, Jesus was studied in the scriptures. See, I think we tend to forget that. I think we we like thinking of Jesus because he is God after all. And we know that God is omniscient. But we don't tend to think about Jesus actually having to learn of the laws of God as it were spelled out in the Torah and in the sacrificial system and, and basically in what the faith was called of Judaism. But remember Philippians 2, 5 through 7, who although Jesus existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. That is, Jesus had to learn the Torah. Jesus was schooled in Judaism. 
In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was a child, and this was the incident where Jesus had just kind of wandered off and disappeared, and Mary and Joseph were freaking out, understandably so, because they didn't have any idea where he was, and he'd been gone for quite a while. What we read in Luke 2:46 and then 52 is this. Then after three days, they found Jesus in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And Jesus kept increasing, we're told at the end of this passage. He kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with men. You see, there's no reason to think that Jesus came into the world as a biblical scholar from the womb. So now one of the scribes, who again were the official recorders of the law of God, but they weren't simply copyists. Okay, They weren't the, the ancient Xerox. They were scholars in their own right. And part of their role was, in fact, to explain and elaborate on the law of God, making it supposedly, making it more accessible to the layman, and then to record all of it. They took the Ten Commandments, though, and they expanded them into 613 minor commandments, which were supposed to explain those ten. Jesus makes note of this earlier in Mark chapter 7, and when he makes note of it, he ends up zinging them for it. This is what we read. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. And so their elaboration of the Ten Commandments became paramount even above the Ten Commandments. Yet with over 600 additional commandments, even they knew that some obviously were more important than others. And they enjoyed debating about it, which were debating about which ones were, were of minor significance and which were the biggies. So now you know the background concerning the scribe's question here to Jesus. My initial thought is, is this scribe just another dishonest doubter, as we have seen over and over again with Jesus' critics? Is he just another dishonest doubter playing games with Jesus? Or is this scribe like Nicodemus and Gamaliel, two others that we met earlier, who were honest doubters? Our text makes that quite clear. The scribe asks, what commandment is the foremost of all, Jesus? And Jesus answered, the foremost is hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus jumps right into the Torah, into the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. 
in what is called the Shema. Because it begins, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And every Jew needed to know that and would know that. And they would have to memorize it. And there wasn't a Jew standing in the crowd, I assure you, that was not aware with the Shema, no matter what their Jewish persuasion happened to be. It was required reading. It was required study. It was required to be memorized for one's bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah, which is still the case today as far as I understand. And it was recited daily at the evening in the morning prayers. So Jesus has their attention now. And then Jesus adds, but the second commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now the text tells us that the scribe was quite taken by the wisdom of Jesus, smacking around his colleagues. And that is an important point to remember. Thinking through Mark over all these months, what was the one thing above everything else that kept reoccurring that we are told that Mark tells us, so he's underscoring it, what was the one thing that kept occurring that the critics were astounded by? And that is that Jesus taught with authority. He didn't opine that these were the two greatest commandments. Oh, the two greatest, hmm? Whew, wow, well, I mean, you know, to me, you know, I see these two as being the greatest, but I mean, I, they might not be the greatest to you, but, but you know, whatever's the greatest to you is the greatest to you, and whatever's the greatest to me. Jesus didn't play that game. He stated dogmatically. He stated unapologetically and without reservation what the answers always were. No debate. So remember what I've said repeatedly over the past several weeks in Mark about the honest doubters and the dishonest doubters. That when answering foolish questions, whether we're talking about a congregational setting or whether we're talking about just a a secular lecture hall or an academic lecture hall or we're talking about a radio audience or a blog audience or a newspaper or even just a friend or a colleague seeking counsel, there will always be doubters who are seeking answers to know what is true. Those are the honest doubters. And there will be dishonest doubters seeking answers to avoid the truth. When I was on the uh, radio some of you might remember Maine in the Morning with Mike Violet and Eric Leinbach. And then when I was in the newspapers and then when I was doing commentaries for WWWA, I was keenly aware that there were those who would never be brought an inch closer to the Lord. And in fact, some would no doubt be offended and in some ways be moved even perhaps further away from the Lord because of what I said or what I wrote. But in the thronging crowds, in the classroom, in the workplace, wherever, there are those who, despite outward appearances, are seeking and longing and searching, sometimes without even knowing what it is that they're searching for. 
They just know that something is keenly wrong with their lives. And unbeknownst to us, they are looking and even listening, even if reluctantly. This past, I think it was this past fall, one of our faithers, our precious Nicole Kenny, one of our teens, was doing uh, what's called See You at the Flagpole. And it usually happens, I think, in November, if I remember, and it's just a gathering of, of believers around the flagpole of their school to pray for the school, for the nation, and that sort of thing. It was kind of a national movement. It seems like it's rather gone out of fashion, but Nicole was doing it at her school. And on the next day, and I know she was doing that, and I was praying for her about that and all, and the next day I asked her, so how did it go? She said one other person came. And of course, <laughs> believe me, being a pastor and holding special events and things, and you come in and you're like, Ugh. it's sort of like your worst fears are realized. But what we want to remember is what John tells us in chapter 6, verse 44 of his gospel. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So it's not our responsibility. It wasn't Nicole's responsibility to see that anybody shows up. But just to be faithful and to put the word out. And who knows but what the Lord hasn't done or will do with that one who is there. But here's the greater point. So you see a couple of people standing in a flagpole and, and some of the friends are walking by and they know they go, isn't that Nicole? Yeah, it's Nicole. What in the world is she doing? Oh, it's that, you know, she's that church girl thing and they're doing that flagpole thing. And at the time they might even go, oh yeah, one of those, whatever. And we have no idea how the Holy Spirit uses that in the minds and in the lives of that person over intervening years, just pounding on them. Yeah, what was that all about? Uh-huh. See, we never know. So all God calls us to do is to be faithful in that. Well, Jesus has been blasting the scribes and the Pharisees, as I said, at every opportunity throughout his ministry. And this one scribe who was part of those antagonists was listening, however, and he was looking. And here he comes now seeking truth. Which is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus tells him, and the scribe answers Jesus back, verses 32 and 33. Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And if you could hear it there, there had to be sort of this, this spiritual gasp. Did he just say that out loud? And if he was something less than, I think, in the spirit, did he say, did I just say that out loud? Given the audience that he is in the midst of? You see, the reply of this knowledgeable scribe reveals more about himself than probably he even realized. 
As a scribe, he is a Jew of Jews. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews. To the faithful Jew, the law of God is everything. And the very foundation of Judaism, of the law of God, is the sacrificial system. And one's faithfulness as a Jehovah worshiper was measured by rigorous adherence to the system of obedience to the laws of God. And yet one's inability to do this perfectly was the reason for the sacrificial system. It could never be done to God's satisfaction. So you who have read the Old Testament... Know how emphatic and repetitive instructions are for the multitudinous rules governing which sacrifices are to be done when and how and where and what kinds of animals and how the carving should be done and how the fire should be done and what kinds of parts should be cooked and what parts shouldn't be cooked and what parts could be animate. It just goes on and on. So this scribe affirming Jesus' statement as to which commandment is the greatest, meaning the Shema and then to love your neighbors yourself, that's not a real big deal. Most of them would at least intellectually give assent to that. But for this scribe to add that actually living out those commandments is much more. It's more important. It's greater than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. The fact that he would actually say that is stupefying, not to mention exquisitely offensive to his hypocritical colleagues. The scribe's profession of understanding, I dare say, was unnatural. And Jesus could have easily said to this scribe, just as he did to Peter, remember when when, uh, Peter confessed to Jesus who he was, Jesus says to him, Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so again, I remind us all that no one, as John records, can come to Jesus unless the Father who sent him draws him, and he will raise him up on the last day. The scribe's reply is telling. The book of Hebrews now is a New Testament book written for the Jewish Christians in that day. And it is to give full perspective on the Old Testament and specifically its relationship to Jesus. Its purpose is to emphasize that Jesus bar None is superior to everyone and everything, including all of the ceremonialism of Judaism and even including the whole sacrificial system. The book of Hebrews was written to make sure that the Jews understand that everything that was written in their Bibles, which was the Old Testament, was always pointing to Jesus. Always, from the various earliest book of Genesis. But before Hebrews is even penned, which it is at this time now in the gospel, this scribe unwittingly reveals that unholy man's answer to peace with a holy God is not found in keeping the sacred practices 
of the law of God, which then begs the question, well, what then is the value of the law? I mean, after all, two-thirds of our Bible is what would be called the law of God, the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews explains. In chapter 10, the law, since it is only a shadow Now get this, the law, the Old Testament, is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. It can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, it can never make perfect those who draw near. If it could have, otherwise they would have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Well, what then is the purpose of the law? In those sacrifices, the writer tells us, in fact, there is a reminder of sins year by year. There is a reminder of their sins and how wretchedly hopeless they are if they think they are going to come before God on their own and by their own effort and by their own attempts at religiosity and holiness and everything else. For it is impossible, the writer says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, in light of that, when he, Jesus, comes into the world, Jesus says, sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have taken no pleasure And then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. He then said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, meaning the law, the ceremonial system, and the whole rites of Judaism. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Not repeated over and over and over, but once for all. So let me explain. No time. Let me sum up. Point number one, the law was only ever intended to be a shadow of the good things to come, if you will, a silhouette. Now, what can we learn or what can we tell from a silhouette? Let's put a silhouette up. All right, now don't say anything. Okay, Hmm. I'm willing to bet that probably... Most everybody knows who this is, right? Don't say it, okay? Now, I'm willing to bet that if you didn't know who it was, though, that just by the outline, the shadow of the style of the hair and this little thingy here in the back, that you'd go, okay, this isn't from contemporary times. This is from days gone by, right? You can tell certain things from a shadow, We know that this is Washington, and we know the era in which it occurred. But we can't tell if uh, he had an issue with acne when he was a child, okay? 
We, we can't tell if he nicked himself with a razor and he's got a scar on his face, right? We can't tell what color his hair is. We can't see if he's got, you know, big honking uh, eyelids like mine are growing and caving in over my eyes or if he's got bushy eyebrows or anything like that. We can't tell any of the minutiae or the details, but we can tell something from this. The law was a silhouette, it was a shadow of the good things which were to come, which would be filled out in detail. Point number two, the sacrifices were not only never intended to be the answer to our lethal problem called sin, they were in fact intended to be reminders of our failings. And that was a good thing, you see, because only God can satisfy God. Only God can satisfy his demand for perfect obedience to his righteous demands, his law, his flawless character. Only God can satisfy that. No amount of religious observance could erase our unholiness. And so it was meant to remind us, yeah, you're a loser. Yeah, yeah, you're a failure. But there is hope in your failings. God has already taken care of this issue. If you want to receive it and believe it and, and look to the Messiah, the Savior, God incarnate coming to earth for you and to save you from your sins. That's the great news. But in and of yourself, it can't happen. It won't happen. And I'm going to make sure that you know it every time you are offering a sacrifice. Because I want you to be in despair. Because I want you to be driven to the hope that is to come that removes all of your sins all the time forever because of your Savior and Lord and Messiah Jesus. Point number three. Jesus is the answer. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Hebrews explains the marriage of the Old Testament and the New Testament in three verses. They are, in fact, the gospel of grace expressed with clarity in Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 13. Here's what it says. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, referring to the second coming of the Messiah. The scribe gives a faith filled, spiritual eyes wide open answer to Jesus with his last little addition to love the Lord with all the heart, mind, and soul is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The system of sacrifices was a merit-based system as far as the Jews in general were concerned. And as for the scribes and the Pharisees, even more so, which Jesus is going to whack them one more time in just a moment. Verse 34, Mark 12. 
When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, wow, we haven't heard that before about the scribes and the Pharisees. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. The scribe here that is singled out is not the norm. You see, it's one thing to throw out a question thinking that there are no right answers so that you won't be embarrassed in whatever you say. It's another thing altogether to realize that if I'm going to open my mouth, this guy may just make me look like a fool as he's been doing. But this scribe boldly went ahead and he put it all out there. Now what do we make of Jesus' answer to him? You are not far from the kingdom of God. That takes me aback. You're not far. It's almost like he says, getting warmer. <laughs> getting warmer, but I'm, but, but I'm not there yet? Well, why doesn't Jesus say something more certain? Why doesn't he say, he say something more definitive like, behold, the kingdom of God is in your grasp or some such thing like that? Again, not, hey, you're getting warmer. Here is a possible answer. A possible answer. Maybe not the answer, but it's a possible answer. Because even intellectual accuracy in the most important considerations of life may still be an eternity away from saving faith. Not following me? I get that. So let's go back to Mark chapter 7 that we were in many months ago. Mark chapter 7, verse 26, we read about the one who was called the Syrophoenician woman. This is what the text says. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. The scribe is a male, plus one point in the culture of the day. The scribe is one of the social elite, two points, he has studied three points. He is a bright Jewish scholar, four points, and he demonstrated theological astutement, astuteness, five points. He's close, Jesus says. But now we have the Syrophoenician woman, which is minus one point in the culture of the day. She's an outcast among the chosen ones, the Jews, minus two points. She's a Gentile, minus three. She is unlearned, minus four. She is unskilled, minus five. And she's unread, minus six. And yet she pushes back to God incarnate. But she pushes back not with erudition, not with pomp, not with pride, but in sincere, needy, faith-filled desperation. And to her, Jesus says, O woman, you're not far from the kingdom. No, that's not what he said to her. He says, O woman, your faith is great. 
It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Now, do I expect to see the scribe in heaven? Yeah, I do. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Do I expect to see the Gentile woman in heaven? Yes. You see, the woman came offering nothing on her own. She didn't say, well, Jesus, you know, I mean, I've had it hard, okay, and you know what? There's this person, they've been so annoying and obnoxious, and did I respond to them in hate? Or No, 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 here's how I responded. I blessed them. But, you know, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. She comes with none of that. She came offering nothing. She doesn't argue with Jesus about her status in society. She doesn't demand Jesus give her what she wants in some sort of strained understanding of fairness. She just came hoping for everything. Hoping for everything, placing herself in a very uncomfortable and vulnerable place as an undeserving outcast and placed her confidence, her hope, and her faith in the controversial Nazarene to whom she was being drawn. What did Jesus say to the multitudes at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20? I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is yet just another presentation of the gospel of grace and salvation by faith alone, even before it has been completed by the crucifixion and resurrection of the Savior, which is yet now only a few days away. No one comes to the Father unless he is drawn by the Spirit. Does that take the pressure off a little bit when you're witnessing to somebody, you're trying to tell them, and man, you can't get anywhere, and you don't, you know, you don't have the answers that they're asking questions to, or you have bad answers as far as you're concerned, but, but you do know some things, and you do know what you know, and you just let it out there, and that's the way it is. Whether you are Ravi Zacharias, or whether you are the Syrophoenician woman, nobody gets saved because of your ingenious answers and ability to argue the faith. God does call us to be absolutely diligently faithful, looking for those opportunities, whatever skill level we are at, to be ready to give account of the hope that lies within us. The rest is up to him. So, Christian. Take the pressure off to perform. Take the pressure off to get the 26 students at the see you at the flagpole. Take the pressure off to get somebody to go, wow, okay, I get it. Just tell them what you know. Maybe you can't even explain why you believe it. But be faithful to the hope that lies within taking advantage of every opportunity. To the unbeliever, If you're here this morning, not necessarily true, but I assume that you are being drawn by the Holy Spirit 
I don't know that. Nobody knows that but God himself. And I would say to you that if you are being drawn by the Holy Spirit to the Lord God, then just say, okay, what's next then? And just reveal that openness, that willingness. Say, God, I'm interested. Okay. You know, I'm not there yet, but I'm interested. And he'll be sure that you get what you need. I've said it many times, especially in the Gospel of Mark. God doesn't mind the honest doubter. He can't stand the dishonest doubter. Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, to every honest doubter that may be in here this morning, I pray right now that if your spirit is whispering to them and they kind of know it, but they're resisting it, that you might raise your voice a little more. And if you have to, you'll scream and shout. And I know you're willing to do that. And in in any number of ways, you do do that. Lord, to those who already claim allegiance to you, help us each to check ourselves that our righteousness, our religiosity, in fact, does exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests and all the religious experts of the day who prided themselves on their religious knowledge and their their religious outward appearance. For many will be surprised on that day when you say, what? Who are you? I never knew you. Lord, fill us with your spirit for your purposes and your grand, your grand commission for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.